0: Hello friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the Ladies of the Catholic Association bringing you witty and charming, in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5pm on Saturdays, and of course our radio show is always a podcast. And you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, joined by my colleague at the Catholic Association, our legal advisor, Andrea picciotti Bear.
1: We've got a really amazing show coming up. Joining us to discuss the unanimous acquittal of Australia's Cardinal George Pell is well-known law professor and Catholic scholar, Helen Alvarez. Plus, Mary Hassan of the Catholic Women's Forum joins us later in the show to discuss the opportunities for growth and advancement presented by our time of quarantine.
0: But first, Andrea, we want to share some really special work being done by the Knights of Columbus to respond to the needs of our community and the church in this time of crisis. Joining us right now is Andrew Walther. He's Vice President of the Communications and Strategic Planning for the Knights of Columbus. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences,
1: Andrew.
2: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Andrew, the Knights has been at the forefront of offering public relief since its founding back in the late 1800s. And and again, in facing this crisis, the Knights have developed incredible initiatives. Can you tell us about some of them?
2: Well, you know, it's it's interesting. This is our our third pandemic as an organization. The first was in the late 19th century, 1890. The second was in 1918, and now we have this one. And in you know, in terms of the nice response, we've been doing a great deal. We we launched a program called leave no neighbor behind in which we're asking our members to support their community to make sure that their neighbors have the food and medicine they need to you know drop food off on their doorstep if necessary to donate to blood drives uh around the country as as a blood shortage is particularly acute right now and so we have stepped up with a combination of of our volunteers and the kinds of programs that we run on a regular basis. I mean, these are things our our men are involved with all over the country already. In terms of giving blood, this is something the Knights of Columbus pioneered on a national level in 1938. Um, the idea of supporting food banks and and um, food for families is one of the programs we've had for a long time. So all of this is really. Um, part and parcel of what the knights do and we're ramping it up even more in this time because so many people are obviously being affected with the combination of the disease itself and also the effects of the disease which include in this case unemployment and people uh going hungry and and needing to find food and so on so the knights are really uh doing everything we can to step up our community involvement and make sure that literally we leave no neighbor behind.
0: I like what you're doing Andrew not only because it's um because there are so many very stru- very uh, terrible needs that so many people in our communities are experiencing whether through unemployment or illness but also because we feel very isolated all of us sitting at home most of us uh, are no longer working from the office or maybe no longer working at all so we're very isolated and, and atomized we're very separate from our neighbors and I feel that your program will uh, help us will help a lot of us to connect to our neighbors and, and to people who need us which will, all, which will make us all of us feel better and, and more human.
2: Well, you know, I mean, the Knights, of course, is is committed to charity. This is what we, we talk about as the first principle of the Knights of Columbus. And so helping our neighbors is something very important to us. We're also helping the church. We announced a hundred million dollar line of credit program, low interest line of credit for dioceses that need help in getting through the economic turbulence of this period. Obviously, dioceses minister spiritually through their parishes and, and uh, through you know the diocese itself, but there's also you know people don't think of the charitable work that comes out of parishes and dioceses. People don't think of all of the people that are employed by parishes and dioceses, and so we're also trying to step up our help in in that regard and make sure that the church itself can come through, continue its ministry, continue um, providing the employment it provides to people. Whatever whatever the particular needs of a diocese are that might avail themselves of this program, we're also uh, taking, taking steps in that regard and we'll be announcing a number of additional um, funds going out to projects related both both at home and abroad to COVID response and, and of course people are always welcome to help us you can go to kfc.org, kofc.org and donate to the Knights of Columbus uh, COVID related response the Leave No Neighbor Behind program
1: Andrew, you and your wife recently came out with a book on the history of the Knights. And it's I I have a copy. I love it. I love my older boys. I find them like sneaking and passing through the pages. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about uh, that experience of writing an illustrative history of the Knights and where listeners who are interested in getting their own copy might be able to find one?
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. The Knights had not had a new uh, a new history published in about four decades, and in 2007, as we celebrated our 125th anniversary, we were working on pulling together a lot of the photographs from our history for that celebration, and, and we had a had a great photo archivist, and we discovered an incredible treasure trove that had sort of been forgotten over the years. And in talking about it with our Supreme Knight, Carl Anderson, uh, he had the idea that we should try to get a lot of these photographs into a book. And one thing led to another and, uh, here we are, you know, 13 years later, and we have a almost 300 page illustrated illustrated history, which is both, you know, you can read it as a as a regular history book, you can go through and read the running narrative of the history of the Knights of Columbus, which is which is in this book. And, and I think we break some very important ground on the history of the organization but you can also take a look at more than 500 photographs which give you a real peek behind the curtain a real insight into the way life was going back to 1882 when we were founded and even before with what catholics were facing in in the colonies and the united states in the in the earlier years and so i think our hope is that people will come away with a great understanding of the Knights of Columbus. Certainly, but I also think for any Catholic who is interested in the history of the Church in this country, this book is a is a really interesting window into a major uh, component of that history. And it's available uh, at Amazon. It's available at Barnes and Noble. Uh, organize another bookstore in, in Tennessee I think Unison Books has has it available so you can you can get it where, where books are sold and when bookstores reopen I imagine you'll be able to get it in even more places
0: you can also find that book on my coffee table I'm going to go right from here to there to look at the way that the Knights helped in those other two pandemics and thank you so much Andrew for all your work and the work of the Knights in getting us through this crisis we, we appreciate that very much and we appreciate your presence Presence in our show.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks to you both.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we've been speaking with Andrew Walter of the Knights of Columbus. Now we're joined by Helen Alvarez, professor of law at the Antonin Scalia. School of Law at George Mason University, and one of the smartest women in America. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Professor Alvarez.
3: It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me, both of you.
0: This, uh, this, this Easter, this is Easter week, and we got some really amazing Easter news just a few days ago. We, after a very long and gloomy Lent, we got news that Australia's Supreme Court threw out the conviction of Cardinal George Pell for child molestation. And it's made us very yeah. happy at Conversations with Consequences. How has it made you feel, Helen?
3: Well, I have to say I I really did approach it as a lawyer um, even more so than as a Catholic and reviewing the evidence that was given below, at least what we were able to discern because at some point um, one of the levels of the court shut down all of the ability to know what was being uh, said, which is really extraordinary. But what I could see, there was so little that seemed credible. It seemed utterly unimaginable in practical time that what was claimed could have happened that just the way the the evidence struck me and I was especially gratified that you had a seven to zero decision by the highest court in Australia and that their their uh, conclusion was so flat out this is not credible, that there is no legal way, they found, that a jury could have failed to see reasonable doubt. I, their, their statement was so blunt, and uh, it seemed to me to correspond with the evidence as I was able to read it, and 7-0, I think this is something that, that legally we can feel good about. Um, given that we know there, there is this trouble in the church, but we all had a sense that this case, there was not being justice done. So I, I just, I'm gratified as a lawyer to see the system not corrupted.
1: No, absolutely. Helen, we've been tracking this case for a while and we've had occasion on, on shows before to speak with one of Cardinal Pell's close friends, George Weigel, who you know very well. Um, yes. And although I haven't had access the access to the actual decision isn't available at this point, in the statement that you made reference to, the court said that the jury, and I quote, ought to have entertained a doubt as to the yeah. applicant's guilt with respect to each of the offenses for which he was convicted. Now, for those of our listeners not familiar with the case, can you give us a little summary of what was alleged and where you think the problems happened along the way?
3: Well... I'll- what they had was an original claim by uh, two young young boys, um, one of whom, Passed away. The other continued to make a claim many, many years after the incident uh, that was claimed to have occurred and claimed um, something that happened really during like an ongoing liturgy in a place of the church that would have been easily, you know, a place where people would be coming and going throughout the liturgy. Um, it was so unlikely that someone with no prior any intimations of this sort of behavior would have done this and then done it in a place where anyone could have walked in at any time and then there was no contemporaneously corroborating evidence at all no other witnesses with anything probative to say on this
1: well and um, what's really amazing Helen in all of this it's not the burden of the defense as we know, that the burden is on the prosecution to prove the facts that are being alleged. But in this case, the defense had overwhelming evidence to question whether these allegations were even plausible.
3: Yes, they did, and this is why when I say it was legally gratifying to see just the little excerpts that we have from the high court's opinion, basically what they're saying is the the amount of statements that were made, again, as you put it, in criminal law, the state has to show uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard. You know, in a civil case, it's a preponderance of the evidence, but here it was guilt beyond a reasonable doubt as a criminal case, and there was... There was so much to cast a doubt on this, but for the High Court to say that basically, as a matter of law, it was impossible on this evidence not to have a reasonable doubt should really satisfy people who wonder if justice were done here. I mean, we know that there is a lot in the Catholic Church among a variety of clergy and others to actually legally be horrified about morally as well. This is really... On, on the whole other side of the line of this, where it, it appears that someone who, because of their great strengths in opposing the common mentality on very neuralgic issues, where the church was really being hounded in Australia, was himself targeted and uh, unfairly. And it's just, it's a relief to see what's been done.
0: I'm not a legal expert, but from my perspective, it seemed to me that if someone like Cardinal Pell could be put in jail for six years uh, and treated so horribly as he's been treated, not allowed to um, celebrate the Mass, and I think he spent a lot of time in, in all by himself in solitary confinement, it seemed to me that n- none of us are safe from unfounded accusations and, and I feel that our culture is moving towards that in many ways in this Me Too uh, generation that we're living in or this Me Too era where the accuser is believed without any doubt and the accused yeah. uh, just has to have their life exploded without any recourse.
3: You know, we we all know that both with coming to light and and the proper prosecution of sexual abuse, wherever it is, inside the church or out, or the coming to light of of actual sexual abuse that's been gathered under the name of Me Too, abuse against women, that it's a wonderful thing that people can speak about this, not feel uh, themselves that they will be blamed for it uh, and that justice will be done. But we also know that there is a great deal of injustice just being done because of a you know um, uh, this being the sort of the latest thing. Um, I am uh, dear friends with a mother in my area where I live um, who had a son accused with. Absolutely. There was there was nothing. It was a fight with a friend of a friend of a friend who decided to get back at this young man. And when she went to her attorney, who was a very experienced criminal defense attorney, he said, listen, if, if this young woman gets one other person to lie and say, he put his hand on my knee and I told him no, but he we refused. He said, in this county, he's done for. Oh. It will be on his record. And I was suffering with this mother and just so overwhelmed with grief. And eventually, you know, there were no complaints anywhere. There was no contemporaneous anything. There was evidence that they had a fight over something completely different while out with a group of people. Um, and, And the young girl just didn't pursue it. But had she... We all knew what the consequences were going to be without a doubt if she could find uh, an acquaintance to lie. Um, and when the attorney put it that way, this this mother, her family, they just they, they were just beside themselves. And it is such a shame that this kind of behavior actually casts doubt upon all the legitimate
1: claims. Th- that's really what's happening absolutely. And that that's one thing that I was thinking about in, in this is there are legitimate claims. And there are legitimate cases where there's only one, the testimony of the victim. And it's infuriating that there can be false claims that are brought. And those basically kind of undermine the legitimacy and the rigor of prosecutors. Helen, what do you think about the prosecution in the case of Cardinal Pell? Did they fail in pursuing a case without kind of any kind of basis to it is that where the first big problem happened
3: you know i would like to know as as you know being legally particular about this i would like to know more details than i do before coming to that kind of conclusion um and so i I don't feel expert enough to opine on that
1: no, I think the, the biggest challenge in all of this, whenever we're dealing with both vindicating uh, the rights of victims and defending common principles like the presumption of innocence and reasonable doubt, all of these require uh, seriousness and not jumping yes. to conclusions. And I think, if, I think it was Cardinal Pell in his personal statement talked about that justice is based in truth. Yeah. and that we and, all as as participants whether we're lawyers or um, advocates we need to be very aware of the desire to pursue and seek truth
0: if you're just yeah. and, and- Go right ahead. Sorry. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined by my colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. We are speaking with Professor of Law Helen Alvarez. Helen, permit me to pivot for a moment uh, to discuss um, another thing that's very much on our minds, besides the happiness of Cardinal Pell being uh, released from his terrible sentence, Um It's the pandemic, of course. It's going on all around us. We're all suffering from it. And Helen, you're a strong defender of the unborn. Some governors have closed down abortion clinics. um, And of course, there's been a lot of pushback on that from the abortion industry. They're objecting. What are the legal reasons that could justify closing these clinics at a time of quarantine?
3: Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, we know from the data Usually, it comes out of Planned Parenthood. Sometimes, out of its former affiliate, the Guttmacher Institute. That you know, over 99% of abortions have nothing to do with um, uh, with with anything even closely related to rape, incest, life, or even health of the mother. Um, there are a couple of percentage points that uh, Planned Parenthood's Guttmacher Institute referred to as related to health, but even in those they're very non specified as to whether they um, have anything to do with the child's health, the mother's health, a feared health thing a the mother ingested alcohol in the early weeks when she didn't know she was pregnant and now fears about health outcome, et cetera so the, even those statistics that a couple of percentage points deal with um, health of the mother are um, are really uncertain. All this is to say that when the governors closed things that were not essential, um, it sort of dovetails with, with what we know again from Planned Parenthood about abortions not going to women's health or, or even anything that we might say is a very impactful emotional health argument that it it is mostly abortions as, as again Planned Parenthood measures for reasons of inability to afford um, uh, the child at this time in the person's view or mostly the largest reason is just not ready to have a child at this precise time in my life so so when abortion clinics are told, listen, you're not really essential to the conduct of people's lives right now, um, it's it's sort of a reflection of the data that they, they aren't closely related to even individuals' own thinking about preserving their own health. It's, it's more about state and life at that moment. I think the most telling thing I read was that in some places Planned Parenthood is trying to assert itself as a healthcare clinic more mm-hmm. broadly. Um, has closed its health care facilities but left its abortion clinics open. I think that is really telling.
0: And, you know, interestingly, right out of uh, Australia, I read this morning that the Australian abortion clinics clinics are have had their mask orders canceled by mask distributors who would rather sell their masks to hospitals that are treating virus wow. patients. And they say, I'm sorry, the mask distributors are saying, I'm sorry, you're just not healthcare organizations. We have real needs in our country, which is this virus wow. and keeping our people alive. And you want masks. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? It's coming out of Australia again, good news, <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> Helen. You know,
3: that, that makes me think of two broader things um, regarding abortion. Number one, we know that the the willingness of doctors to even perform this, or the medical community, they may embrace it in their political statements, whether it's the obstetrician gynecologists or the American Pediatrics. But in essence, way before anyone was protesting outside an abortion clinic or praying outside a clinic, the number of doctors willing to perform it had fallen. Pretty precipitously. Mm -hmm. There was an initial flurry after Roe in 1973 and then a dramatic decline and it's really hard to find doctors to perform it. So that's an interesting fact. The other thing that I'm wondering about is we know, and including from the the most famous article on the subject by um, Obama's uh, Fed chairwoman, Janet Yellen, and her husband, um, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, George Akerlof, we know from some of their writing and the writing of others that um, when abortion is really readily available, as it is in our country, um, you actually get higher rates of unintended pregnancy out of wedlock pregnancy, you get less and later marriage, et cetera. And you, I'm wondering whether the sort of unavailability of abortion will actually drive sort of a downward trend in the, in unintended or non-marital pregnancies in the short run. It, it's there. It's not that people say, oh, I'll be fine with an abortion. They're not willing it. It's just part of the context of, of the landscape in which a person can decide I'm going to have sex without the possibility of a future relationship with this person that could suffice to raise a child. It, it's just very interesting to see if, if the lack of abortions on the horizon and more, and the discussion about it will generate a lowered rate of, of, of non-marital and unintended pregnancies.
1: Well, and Helen, as an expert in family law, I, was, I have a lot of issue, issues to ask of you about um, the impact of this time of quarantine and pandemic on family. Hopefully, the absence of abortion access will encourage people to have families um, instead of dissolve but what are some of the stresses that you see um, that this the pandemic and the quarantine are placing and how that relates to issues of family law, whether there's an uptick in domestic violence or what are what's what are your greatest concerns right now?
3: Yeah, I, I you know, I'm keeping up with a lot of reading on this subject that's pouring in every day on various listservs and professional blogs that I'm on. And there is a concern about domestic violence as people are limited in their ability to leave a situation and tensions are heightened and money worries. Domestic violence is um, is, is more concentrated in, in less stable family situations. So it, there's dramatically less domestic violence in marriage, but there's a lot more domestic violence relatively in um, cohabitation uh, dating relationships et cetera and and the the, the tension combined with the the lesser income coming into a lot of poorer families is going to it's a real concern about spiking there um the other thing, some people are talking about whether there'll be a baby boom, uh, and there's there's literally bets on either side of that from various <laughs> sociologists and economists, um, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, other questions concern people who are thinking about dissolving their family situation, and whether this will hasten that or slow it, you know, one of the things about U.S. divorce law is unilateral no-fault divorce, which is what every state has, basically, Um is uh, it's just so easy to get a divorce and will the idea that we really depend a lot on one another and we need help actually um, slow down divorces or will the sort of forced closeness speed up difficulties that that people have all of this is going to be something that's going to be followed for many months after the pandemic eases
0: you know what's making it also makes me think, Helen, that as we are uh, shut in to the uh, to our homes with our families and sometimes with um, bad-tempered husbands, <laughs> we need the church more than ever. We need our relationship to the church more than ever, and we've been cut off in in many ways.
3: Yeah, you know, uh, some local churches like mine—they ha- they're open for adoration several days a week. They're just open for prayer. The pastor will wander in and out. You say hello. You stay far apart, but you still have that. And I have to say, even the online services have a way of calming our family down and bringing us together around discussion of what's said during that service. So they're they're still providing a great deal of benefit.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank
0: you so much, Helen. I'm sorry, but we've come to the end of our time. And uh, I feel we could talk forever. We,
1: <laughs> you have yes, so much always. to tell us. <laughs> we need to have you back on again.
3: Sure. And thank you so much to both of you. And best to your families. God bless. Thank you. And stay thank healthy. You. you too. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Coming up next on Conversations with Consequences, we are joined by Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, broadcasting every Saturday at 5 p.m. on EWTN. Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my co-hostess and colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. Joining us now is a familiar guest at Conversations with Consequences, Mary Rice Hassan. She is the Cato Byrne Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington and the head of the Catholic Women's Forum. Welcome back to the show, Mary. Thank you for making time for us again. Thank you so much. It's always great to talk with you. We really wanted to have you on because you're at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I feel that at the intersection of ethics and public policy, the biggest questions of our time are being decided during this pandemic. Boy, is that ever true. It's
4: just all of a sudden... Um, come upon all of us how important it is to really think about some of these ethical principles and then to see them play out in the decisions our government is making, the decisions individuals need to make, healthcare care. It, it's
0: all of a sudden it's in front of us. Especially, Mary, since this, these are not decisions that are, hap- that are going to uh, impact people that are far away from us or a small percentage of us. We are really looking at decisions that are going to um, come right home to roost for way too many of us.
4: Yeah. I think it's it's probably safe to say that most people now know someone who has come down with the virus and um, if you know, hopefully not died, but a lot of people have have had relatives or friends who've been hospitalized and treated for this. So, um, and everyone is experiencing the result of being isolated at home and uh, the restricted businesses and and the financial impact is certainly on everyone. so
1: so yeah, this is hitting all of us. Mary, there's been a lot of articles in the popular press uh, that paint a very dark picture about what the pandemic and quarantine is going to do for the advancement of women in society. I imagine you have some, some pretty clear thoughts on that
4: well first of all i think it's a good thing for women because i think it's a good thing for families in one sense putting aside the the economic stress and then the concerns about families that may have someone who is who is ill with the virus but but putting that aside for the the average family that is now uh into forced togetherness um I, I think there are opportunities here for families, but, but for women as well. And most of the criticism that I've seen, there was an article in the New York Times and a couple of other things in the mainstream media that expressed concern that women would be sort of forced back into roles that were from the 1950s or 1960s we would lose that sense of um, advancement and there would be this assumption that women should be taking care of the home and the family and there are a lot of problems with framing it in that way framing the argument that way for one it assumes that taking care of your home and your family is is just out of the box a burden and something that you know is like the the task that neither person wants and they're they're constantly shifting to foist it onto the other person instead of realizing that's kind of what you that that's your life project if you're married and you're having a family it's uh, spending time with each other and forming your children and, and building your your sense of family that family culture so i think that's one of the problems just speaking about um, this family focus that in some ways is, is sort of being forced on some people just in terms of the hours spent at home um, but it's a mistake to think of that as simply a negative so i think that's that's the first problem but there are other things too as well
0: I have found that uh, it has being home um, w- with the whole family all day long, <laughs> seven days a week that there has been a, a great increase in the kind of in the amount of work that I do around the house and what's interesting is that I find myself uh, combating the, the masculine desire to, you know, never make a bed and let things lie where they are. And because it's so they say it's irrational of me to keep cleaning and cleaning. So we've had these wonderful conversations about how, well, this is what I bring to the home as the mother as the female figure in the home, I bring leadership in, in cleanliness and order. And and yes, even though nobody is going to walk in, we're still going to have a very cheerful and bright and orderly home. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I see it as a, as a great opportunity to exert my my feminine um, my feminine genius, uh, genius. genius. <laughs> exactly in the home yeah and I I think in any relationship
4: in any family any situation like this um, and I, I remember it being similar when we would have snow days and all of a sudden everyone is cooped up and people want to sort of relax and which can mean being sloppy depending on the age or whatever so you know for us for us women I think it it's a good thing when we we help to sensitize others maybe it's especially teenage boys or it could be your spouse or, or whatever but to sensitize them that you know when you live with other people and you're right on top of each other it's even more important to be careful about the impact of what you do you know you leave dishes out who is going to put that away and just it forces us sometimes I think to work through things that are uncomfortable or to have conversations or to draw a line when everyone would rather just kind of someone else take care of it but Those are, I think, in the life of a family, those are ultimately good things because they they teach all of us that... What living together and loving is all about is being willing to sacrifice for the other, but it also means calling others to be the person they're supposed to be, which means it's not mom's job to do everything because that's not good for everyone else either. It's, you know, they need to step up and assume their responsibilities. But a lot of women sometimes will say, oh, it's, you know, it's easier if I just do it. Well, that's maybe for a day, but in the long run, you're not doing anyone a favor, either yourself or or your children, in terms of training
1: them to, uh, to be responsible and to be considerate, to be thoughtful. Well, Mary, you make a good point about living and loving, and I think a, a nice reminder in it. In- all of this is a school of virtue for each one of us is to have the virtue of charity so that while we're running and trying to keep things clean and orderly and teaching that we always have charity kind of an infusion of love throughout all of this instead of you know demands and and fighting
4: right and sometimes that's a little messy because yeah. we all are inclined to, sing. but, but ultimately it's a good thing when we persevere through it, trying to do it with charity. But, you know, that, what you said, um, Andrea, too, made me think of, of another criticism that sort of comes from the feminist camp that says it's unfair for women to do all the, quote, emotional labor in the family and so again this idea that now that everyone's home that it's women moms in particular who are more concerned with let's say the health of everyone else checking up Mm. on the grandparents or making sure that you're attentive to the child who needs something and is really struggling with the isolation from friends or or whatever it is that that's considered emotional labor that should be divided 50 50 and i think that misunderstands who we are as women we notice those things and that's a good thing when we notice someone else's needs that's not a sort of a division of labor that's how you love you have to be attentive to someone's needs and the fact that we see that perhaps more easily is is again that's that doesn't make us victims <laughs> that's, that's a good thing we just have to help sensitize others as
1: well
0: Mary I've never heard that criticism I guess I'm not reading enough feminist critical literature <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, Ma- yeah. Mary and I, Mary and I experienced this last year around this time at the UN's, the, the Commission on the Status of Women. Right. And there was a big issue about unpaid labor and trying to divide uh, the labor between a house in a household or in a society between men and women equally and fairly. And, and I think we both came to the same agreement and t- tried to speak uh, to the attendees at the conference that we were at. I don't want anyone taking away that from me. I want to continue to give as much as I possibly can, and I think it's, you know, in in a time where we're worried about contagion, um, things that are contagious, I think this is one contagious thing that we really want. We want more people to step up, to be more attentive, to be more thoughtful.
4: Well, and it forces us, too, to recalibrate our um, our own scale of what's important. So if we as women are measuring our value by productivity and output and, and what's bringing in the money, it's just as men for... You know, years, women criticize men for doing that. But I think one of the one of the mistakes that feminism made in many of those years and and to some extent still still does is to tell women that their worth is similarly um, to be evaluated or measured by. Their productivity and their the money they're bringing in and their career advancement and this this whole situation is like a, a tectonic shift. It's like mm-hmm. it upended everything, and I think that's a good thing because it reminds us to step back and say, "Whoa, but wait a minute! My my dignity and my value is is not tied to whether I still have that job." or whether mm-hmm. I'm it, and the same thing with my kids it's it's not their, their worth and the way I treat them can't depend on whether you know they're getting the grades and they're the, the star kid and all this stuff you know we have to come back to those basics of what it means to be in relationship with each other and what our dig- where our dignity really comes from
0: Mary, you're bringing up these very important concepts of dignity and value and worth and I think that these are concepts that all of us are spending a lot of time thinking about as we are watching in the news the scenarios play out of people um, flooding hospitals with uh, only a limited amount of ICU beds and ventilators uh, to treat too many patients. And uh, we're thinking about uh, how people, how doctors and nurses triage patients. How do they choose who gets the ventilator? And many of us are concerned that we are resorting as a people to a a utilitarian ethic when it comes to uh, the, the sharing of our resources.
4: Right, right. And there was actually a, a wonderful piece uh, that your listeners may want to to look at that was in the public discourse. It's a joint statement put out by a number of philosophers, ethicists, um, people who are who think deeply and, and doctors, people who are in the healthcare realm and people of all different faiths. But what they did was they came together with this joint statement that talked about uh, moral ethics in this kind of a situation. How do you prioritize care? Because there is, there are going to be hard decisions to be made, but the the statement was, I thought really balanced partly because they begin with affirming the idea that every person, every life has dignity and we can't approach things from that utilitarian ethic that says, you know, what's the usefulness of this person? What's, what's the ultimate value? Are they going to be around for 50 more years, making more money? Or are they someone who is perhaps intellectually disabled or, or something like that and, and of less quote use to society? So, so this statement says, no, you know what, we don't, we don't start from that utilitarian perspective we start from a perspective that affirms the dignity and value of every life and then from there when we look at patients coming in and we're trying to decide how do we how do we deal with this we we make a clinical judgment about what is appropriate care for this person rather than putting things through formulas and algorithms and and trying to predict who's going to live longer if they have this piece of equipment versus versus that so it's it's very person-centered and very affirming of the dignity of the person without denying the fact that you know at some time there are choices that need to be made just like on a battlefield you know you have someone who's bleeding out and you have someone else who's um, and they're almost gone and someone else who's who's bleeding out but you can save their life that's it's appropriate that you're turning your attention to the one who you have an opportunity to save it's not that you're you're killing the other person Mm -hmm. and 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 that language is very important. You know, we don't want to confuse the issue by using... Um terms that that muddy the waters
1: well mary you make a really good point by directing our listeners to the the joint statement in public discourse there have been great statements that we mentioned last week from the office of civil rights at the department of health and human services and i know that u.s uh the u.s bishops have also issued a statement reminding us and and it was refreshing because when i was first thinking about this I thought, gosh, you know, what a burden on doctors and other healthcare workers that are going to be faced with this decision. And the it's a reminder, that's not a burden that they have to carry on their own. That's a, uh, a burden that's shared. And these statements, these guidance, these bulletins remind them when they're making those decisions of our core principles, that each person has... Uh, Not only dignity, but value. We have to be very uh,
0: careful of not falling into that trap of comparing the 42-year-old man with a wife and three children against the 82-year-old man who's already raised his children and say, well, this man has more value because he needs to raise his family. He has uh, more years ahead that he can uh, contribute to society compared to the 82-year-old man. I, I think it's very easy to fall into that kind of thinking and start to, to compare life years that are ahead versus the ones that aren't ahead. But I really like the way that this document explains that clinically, the decision has to be based on how likely is the treatment to benefit each of these two patients. And the one that uh, has a better clinical outcome it should be the one to receive the treatment. And that is a fair way to do this that considers everybody's human dignity as equal. Right, and I think that's what's at the core of
4: it. You're looking at each person and saying, this is a a person worthy of care. How do I best treat them? How do I best care for them? as opposed to, um, I think, what a lot of people in the disabled community feared, rightly, was that with all the talk about uh, having to make decisions about ventilators, there were there were some people sort of in the public discourse who were theorizing that that would mean that someone who came in with a disability or someone who was already um, less optimal in, in terms of some other aspects of their life, maybe they were poor or whatever, that they were not going to be treated with the same dignity and care. And so what you were saying, Gracie, just sort of captures it really well, is that you look at each person and look clinically and decide what is going to benefit this person given the available resources. And that's that's the right way to do it, I think.
0: Mary, what I've been thinking recently is that the way that our country, our culture has embraced assisted suicide, for instance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. has made it uh, very hard to disentangle our medical system from a utilitarian ethos. Because in assisted suicide, we are forced <laughs> by law to consider that some lives are not worth living that and this seeps into the consciousness of the medical profession and and also and of course to the larger society and also the um the assisted suicide kind of mindset
4: gets people used to thinking that it's somehow compassionate to kill someone or to to hasten their death and that's just it's a wrong way to think about it you, you just you can't there are some things you can't do if you really are going to uphold the dignity of all life
1: mary we have a whole host of more and more questions that I wish that we would be able to ask you because you're just a source of, of knowledge and kind of a prudence. Uh, one thing that I, we're all aware of is we're, we're heading into the final stretch of Holy Week. Um, it's not like any Holy Week I've ever lived. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure none of our listeners ever imagined living this Holy Week What can guidance or advice can you give to our listeners and their family members on how to really be the Easter people that we're called to be with the limitations, the challenges, and the contradictions that we're facing?
4: I I think it's simply to have gratitude in our hearts, to be present to Christ. Our faith is a a faith of presence, you know, the real presence, the Eucharistic presence. And while we're deprived of that right now, we we can be aware of God's presence in our lives and be grateful for that and communicate that great sense of gratitude for his death and resurrection so that that comes through in our joy and in how we treat everyone this week and and in the the Easter season that follows. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining us at Conversations with Consequences. It's been such a pleasure having you and we hope that you and your family stay safe for the duration of this this great global calamity. (laughs) Thank you so much. You too. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
5: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to wish you and your family a happy Easter as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us. It's a conversation that should be anything but routine, especially this year, as most of us need to celebrate Easter at home. Just like Jesus entered the closed doors of the upper room where the apostles and Mary were living just during their time in Jerusalem, just like Jesus entered the home of the disciples in Emmaus where they recognized him in the breaking of the bread of life, so Jesus wants to enter your and my home this Easter and help us to enter into his triumph of life, light over darkness, joy over sadness, love over hatred, and life over death. There are various consequential conversations that happened on that first Easter. The angel spoke to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary at the tomb, saying, Don't be afraid, you're seeking Jesus the crucified. He's not here, he has been raised, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. They receive the incredible news of Jesus' resurrection and then are called to share that news. We likewise have Jesus' very intimate conversation later with Mary Magdalene in the garden, when because of her sadness, she couldn't discern the risen Lord's presence and mistook him for a gardener before he called her by name. The same Jesus wants to call us by name and to recognize his victorious presence with us. We have the conversation of Jesus with the 2 crestfallen disciples on the road to Emmaus, whose hopes that Jesus might have been the Messiah had been crushed by his death. But Jesus helped us to, op- helped to open their minds to the meaning of the scriptures and made their hearts burn when they began to recognize that Jesus' crucifixion was not a contradiction of his messianic mission, but a confirmation. The same metamorphosis Jesus worked in them he wants to effect in us. Helping us to understand everything, especially our greatest sadnesses, within the light of God's word and will, so that our hearts might burn, so that we might recognize him in the Eucharist, so that we might, like the disciples in Emmaus, go uphill in darkness to share the light. And we have that dialogue of Jesus with the apostles in the upper room when he asked, why are you troubled? Why do questions arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I. And then he strengthened them in their mission to bring his triumph to the ends of the earth. Jesus wants to answer our questions, respond to our doubts, and to strengthen us to complete that same mission he has entrusted to us. It's a huge disappointment for priests and faithful alike that we're not able to celebrate Jesus' victory together in packed churches. But even though we are not able to celebrate Easter together liturgically, even though we're not able to receive his risen body and blood in Holy Communion, even though we're not able to welcome into the church as scheduled the new Catholics who have been preparing through baptism to enter into Jesus' death and resurrection, the reality of what we memorialize on Easter remains. And it should impact our lives just as it impacted Mary Magdalene's in the garden, the ten apostles cowering in the upper room, the confused disciples on the road to Emmaus, doubting Thomas. Before he probed Jesus' wounds and stalking Saul of Tarsus outside the gates of Damascus. How should it impact our life? The fact of Jesus' triumph should first make us courageous. We see the dramatic transformation the resurrection had in the apostles, changing them from those who would leave the cenacle to betray and abandon Jesus on Holy Thursday to those who would leave anew intrepidly to bear witness to him. When the same Sanhedrin that had gotten Jesus crucified had Peter and John scourged and instructed them never to speak again about Jesus, they rejoiced at suffering on account of Jesus' name and said that they couldn't but speak of what they had seen and heard. In other words, they were undaunted because they realized that even should they be crucified like Jesus, they, like Jesus, would be raised. They were no longer afraid of death or suffering or anything. The resurrection of Jesus should fill us with a similar courage, not just in the face of the coronavirus, but in general. The second great consequence of Jesus' resurrection is a vibrant faith in eternal life. Each of us can say with Job, I know my Redeemer lives. Each of us can echo with St. Paul, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. At a time when many have been stung by the sudden death of those we know and love, where it seems that the coronavirus has triumphed, we know that an imperishable crown awaits those who believe, live, and die in Christ. That's why Christians don't grieve like the rest who have no hope. We grieve differently, because God not only so loved the world that he gave his only Son that we might not perish, but raised his Son as the first fruits of those who have died. The resurrection gives us that indomitable hope. The third impact is a vivid awareness that even if we're socially isolated, even if we are solitarily hooked up to a ventilator, we're not alone. The same risen Jesus who walked through the closed doors of the upper room can traverse the doors of our house or the thickest hospital quarantine. The same Jesus who appeared to the disciples heading to Emmaus wants to accompany us, join our conversation, and make our hearts burn by relating present events to what God has revealed. St. Jesus, who called Mary Magdalene by name and pierced her sorrow, seeks to call each of us and transform our fear and sorrow. The essence of the gospel, as Pope Francis wrote, is Jesus loves you, he gave his life to save you, and now he is living at your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. Jesus is not left as orphans or abandoned, but is present as the Good Shepherd to lead us through dark valleys to verdant pastures. He is very much alive and is with us, loving and strengthening us. The last consequence I'll mention is that the resurrection must uplift our minds and hearts. If you were raised with Christ, St. Paul proclaims to us at Mass on Easter Sunday, seek what is above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Think of what is above, not what is of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The resurrection lifts us from obsessing about worldly things. It helps us to view everything increasingly from God's perspective. We recognize that certain fixations that occupy our time and attention don't really matter, and to place our treasure and our heart in the things that truly last. We prioritize prayer and worship, charity, and growing in faith through reading sacred scripture and taking advantage of the great spiritual resources now available. As social distancing has made us all, to some degree, hidden with Christ and God, we are called nevertheless to live in newness of life with our hearts and minds set above, but Francis told us, Christ's resurrection is not an event of the past, but contains a vital power that permeates this world. That life-giving power is meant to permeate our day-to-day, giving us courage, strengthening our faith in eternal life, emboldening our awareness of God, and renewing our entire life. It's meant to make us living signs of the resurrection, burning tapers, bringing the flame and light of Christ's resurrection to the coldness and darkness that enveloped so many. In the long Lent of 2020, it's prepared us to recognize our need for that vital power even more. A blessed Easter to you all.
0: Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. Here at the Catholic Association, we wish all our listeners a very happy Easter season and lots of joy and consolation. You go with our prayers.